Lord. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband, and she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kyle. Good morning, everybody. Um, nice upbeat scripture for this morning, huh? Uh, there's a lot of good things in here. So I want to start by inviting our children to Children's Church. If you uh, care to go, uh, Kathy will meet you at the back. Um, you guys are welcome to not go if you don't want to. That's up to you and your parents. I'm not going to get involved. <laughs> I know my place. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to God's word. Oh, Lord, heaven will echo forever. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Lord, I, I can't wait to sing that refrain endlessly and never get tired of it because we will see over and over again in new ways for eternity how holy and perfect and right you are. What a joy. What a, what a promise that waits for us. Um, thank you for letting us have a taste of it now. Begin to, to join together and sing, join our voices and to sing praises to you. What a, what a blessing to us. And we pray, Lord, that it is a blessing to you also, that you would delight in seeing your people delight in you. And uh, Lord, we want to pray for our brother Bob Kempel, who's been released from assisted care and is home. Lord, would you strengthen him and, and bring him back to us soon, that he might join in that, that refrain, that he might be able to sing with us and delight with us. And we pray for Judy, that you would grant her strength and wisdom in helping Bob recover. Have mercy on them. Father, we want to pray for our friends, missionaries, and previous pastor, uh, the Burrises, who are recovering from COVID. Uh, Lord, would you continue to strengthen them and, and help them to feel better soon? And uh, Lord, that uh, they would continue to serve you in uh, all the ways that they, they pursue you. And uh, Father, I want to pray again for the Strombergs as uh, Dan is continuing to deal with the repercussions of what's happened in his family with his, his sister's um, um, failing health, the death of his nephew and all of the things that attend that. Lord, would you give Dan and Kathy, uh, again, strength and wisdom and, and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit as they mourn the loss of their nephew, as they deal with the struggles of his sister. Lord, would they, they find hope and help in you. And uh, Lord, I want to pray for our nation in this contentious, um, tense time of uh, politics on the edge, it seems. Lord, as this midterm election is, is winding up, uh, Lord, I just pray that you would grant our nation 
uh, help and hope, Lord, that this experiment in democracy would succeed. And uh, Father, I know that the biggest need in our nation is not the right person in office or, or the right people in Congress or the right laws to be passed, but Lord, our greatest need is you. And so, Father, in the midst of this turmoil and, and through the struggle that's going on and the, the acrimony that we experience, Lord, would you begin to spark in our nation revival, a desire to know more of you, a, a dissatisfaction with the way things are, a knowledge that it can be better. And, Lord, that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to find hope and help in Jesus Christ alone. And, Lord, we pray that you'd begin in your church. Lord, would you begin in this church? Would you begin with me? with all of my friends and my brothers and sisters in Christ here, Lord. Bring about a great revival, we pray. Lord, would you be with us now? Apply your word to our hearts to, toward that end, to knowing you and, and growing in you. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. So in Cleveland at the beginning of October, uh, Chase Kaminsky and Jake Runyon were set to take home $30,000 after winning the Lake Erie Walleye Trail Fishing Tournament. I cannot imagine $30,000 for fishing. I'm, you'd have to probably pay me more than that to actually go fishing. Um, I don't mind fishing, I just don't like the interruption of catching the fish. It's, it's nice to sit there and, you know. So, but these guys, they, they, they were set to win $30,000. What they happened was they had snagged five monster walleye, just beasts. And the collective total weight of those fish was 34 pounds. Now that's remarkable because typically a walleye runs about four pounds. So the more anticipated range would be about 20 pounds worth of fish, but they got these monsters. Well, as they're, they're wrapping up the tournament, the tournament director, Jason Fisher, thought something smelled fishy. Sorry, I had to throw that in. You knew that was coming. Um, so what he did is he took one of the fish and he cut it open, and in the gullet of the fish, he found some lead weights. And so he grabbed a second fish and cut it open, more lead weights. The third fish, he found lead weights, and they had stuffed a walleye fillet inside the walleye. So they had cheated. They, they tried to up the weight of the thing. By the middle of October, a grand jury found Kaminsky and Runyon, get, um, or they had indicted him on charges of cheating, attempted grand theft, and possessing criminal tools. Each charge could bring about 12 months in prison and about $2,500 in fines. Toward the end of October, um, they pled not guilty, and their trial started Wednesday. So this actually casts doubt on a lot of their other wins. They had won somewhere around $100,000 fishing, and now they're wondering, did these guys cheat in these other tournaments? Because one of the typical ways that these tournaments are handled is the winner then donates the fish they caught to a, a homeless shelter or food bank or something like that, and these guys never did. So they're wondering, if, did they cheat previously? But the trial is ongoing. The problem was they sought the glory, probably the cash too, of winning. They, they were more interested in winning than they were of actually accomplishing something. I mean, the pictures of these guys, they're wearing jerseys with tons of uh, endorsements on it. So these are professional paid fishermen. They're making money off of this. And they took their eyes off what, they were, what the joy of fishing is, which is catching fish and look more toward the prize, the glory of the win. Uh, so they sought to put the weight in the wrong place. Instead of catching big fish and winning that way, they were going to put their own weight in. Well, 1 Samuel chapter 4 is about losing the glory of God. 
It's about misplacing the glory. And the second half of the chapter, what we're going to look at this morning, is going to show the repercussions of that this week, uh, the, the repercussions of that this week back home in Shiloh and what had happened there. And, and the problem was Israel took God's glory too lightly. They, they mishandled God's glory. Uh, so there's a connection, by the way, between weight and glory. I didn't just pick that arbitrarily because it was in the, the headlines. There, there's a connection there. So before we start on the text, let me just explain some, uh, some Hebrew to you. Hebrew 101, uh, real quick. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod or kavad. The bait, the B can do either a B or a V, so kabod. And the root of that has to do with heavy, being heavy. So the glory of God is this weight, this, this big, massive heaviness of God. But it can also talk about something being difficult because it's so heavy, it's, it's hard to move, or uh, something to be honored. You'd see this weight, and you would, you would honor this weight. That's, that's kind of the root of it. And so the word gets used in a couple of different ways. It's actually present in both of our stories this morning, in this last half. But it, because we translated it into English, you can't catch it necessarily. So the second part talks about the glory of God, right? The, her son is named Ichabod because she says, where is the glory? Or the glory is gone. And so that's what Ichabod is, is means. But there's another place that it shows up. And that is when Eli dies, he fell off his stool and broke his neck because he was kabed. He was heavy. And so I think the author is, is doing a wordplay here and drawing our attention to what is happening here. He's drawing these two things together. So the, the problem that we're going to look at this morning is the idea of desiring glory. And how do they fit together and how do they work? So it starts off with the story, <coughs> sorry, a man of Benjamin running from the battle and coming to Shiloh on the same day. His clothes are torn and he's got dirt on his head. So remember last week what had happened was the Philistines and Israel drew up in lines for some reason. We never told why they decided to fight. And Israel attacked and lost 4,000 men. And so they, they withdrew and they said, we know what we'll do. We don't know why God has done this, so we'll go get the Ark of the Covenant. And we'll bring it out here and that'll make us victorious. And then they lost 30,000 people. And so this, this Benjaminite leaves the battle and he comes back to Shiloh to tell him what had happened. Now, if you saw this messenger running in, you would know exactly this is not good news. His, his clothes are torn. He's got dirt on his head. That is a, a well-known sign of mourning, of sadness. And so you can just anticipate, okay, not is it bad, but how bad is it? And so he comes into the city and he arrives. As he's running into the city, Eli is sitting on his stool by the road and he's watching. Now, it's interesting that he's watching because he's also blind. So by watching, I don't think it means physically looking. He's, he's waiting for word. He wants to hear what's going on. His heart trembled for the ark of God. His concern was they had taken the ark. Eli was the priest. They had taken the ark out of the, out of the uh, tabernacle and marched it off to battle. And so that's what he was concerned about. Now, when the messenger gets into the city, there's a loud roar. There's an uproar. There's mourning. People are upset. And so Eli says, what is this uproar? It's the same thing that happened last chapter. When the Ark of the Covenant came into the camp of the Israelites, the Philistines heard this large roar, and they asked the same question, what is this roar? In the case of uh, the last chapter, that was supposed to be good news. God is with us. God's in the camp. Now it's bad news. And so Eli says, what is this uproar? And the man hurried and came and told Eli. So I, one of the commentators said they must, he must have run past him and gone into the city as if there's only one way in and out of Shiloh. 
Maybe he took a different route, and then they said, oh, you've got to go tell Eli. He's the priest. He's our judge. He's the one who's been leading Israel. You've got to go out and tell him he's sitting by the road. So he comes out, and he's, he says um, to him, uh, it says in, in, I'm sorry, in verse 15, Eli was 95, 98 years old, and his eyes were set to, so that he could not see. The, the, Eli is, I think, kind of a representation of Israel's spiritual condition in this because he was the priest. He was the high priest. Last chapter, we were told his eyesight was failing, and now he's completely blind. He can't see. So he's, he's 98 years old. He's very old. And the man comes to Eli and says, I am he who has come from the battle. I have fled the battle today. The guy repeats himself. He's so flustered. He's probably out of breath. He, he says it twice. And, and Eli says, how did it go, my son? He wants to know what's, what's the report. He can't look at him and see his, his clothing torn and, and dust on his head, so he just has to wait for the answer. And what the man says is he goes from bad to worst. He starts with, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great defeat among, your among the people. So we lost the battle. He doesn't report necessarily 34,000 people have died, but it's been bad. So in a general term, we lost the war. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. Eli knew that was coming. That was Samuel's first prophecy to him, is Eli and, or, um, uh, Hophni and Phinehas are going to die on the same day. And so this is bad. Now it's personal. It's worse. And then finally he says, and the ark of God has been captured. And that's it. That's the worst news possible. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And this is terrible. This is a reversal. This, the story of 1 Samuel is kind of a story of reversals, of, of reflections back and forth. In chapter 1, the last time we saw Eli sitting, he was sitting by the doorway of the tabernacle. And what was in the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant and, and God's glory above the Ark. <coughs> now he's sitting beside the road at Shiloh where the Ark of the Covenant isn't, though it should be. In chapter 1, he met Hannah a woman who was deeply distressed because she had no child. Now she's going to meet, <coughs> sorry, now he's going to meet a distressed man and learn that he's lost his two children. <coughs> so she didn't have a child. She wanted a child. He had two children and he's lost them. He couldn't hear Hannah's prayer because she was praying silently, but he saw her lips moving. Now he can't see what's going on, but he can hear the uproar from the city. Then he blessed Hannah. He, he, he asked that God might grant her petition. And now he learns that Samuel's prophecy from God is true and his sons are dead. So this is, this is what is said in that first part is, is in Hannah's song in chapter 2. There's a number of things that she says, but a couple of places she says, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. So it sounds like the bows of the mighty as in those who oppose us, but it was the bows of the mighty in Israel. Um, and then she says, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Shiloh and he rises up. He had announced that, he was, that Hophni and Phinehas were going to die. He said that, uh, the, the author told us, God had decided that he would kill them. So this is what, exactly what chapter 1 has been setting up for. This has been showing us the way. This is exactly what God has done. Last week we saw that Israel was defeated before the Philistines. Not by them, but through them. And it was God who had done those things. So what happens now in verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward 
from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. So there's that kavad word again. He was old and he was heavy. It wasn't just that he was overweight and it broke his neck. It was this sense, this, this feeling of the, the glory. And what we look at when we look at Eli is here is Israel at this point. That's why the, the end of the sentence is he judged Israel for 40 years. So this is the time of the judges. This was Eli's role. He was there to lead Israel. He was at the temple. He was offer, supposed to be offering the sacrifices. He was supposed to go into the Holy of Holies. This was his role. But by this point, he's blind, he's old, and he's dead. And so it leaves us with that, that foreboding sense of, now what? What's coming next? Now, we've got a glimmer of hope because we've met Samuel, but you notice Samuel's not in this chapter, and he's not going to be in the next chapter. We won't see him again until chapter 7. So he, he's our hope. He's the glimmer of, of God's promise here, but he hasn't shown up yet. So he, he's, he's now gone. This is it. Eli's dead. His sons are dead. But it's not over. It gets worse. There's a second part to the story, too. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news of the ark and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. The grief, the overwhelming bad news had triggered labor in her. She just was so emotionally drained that her body went into labor. And about the time of her death, apparently this delivery did not go well. And so she's, she's given birth to a son, but she's dying. Those attending her said, do not be afraid, for you've born a son. Now, in context, she has lost her husband. So who should she be with? Well, her father-in-law maybe will take care of her. No, her father-in-law is gone. So this is a woman who's now cut off. She is poor. She is destitute. She has no hope for the future. So it's actually good news. You have a son. Because now her son could inherit whatever her husband had, and she could raise this child, and then he would take care of her. But even that won't bring her hope. That, that's not good enough. Um, as she's dying, she didn't pay attention to any of that. Instead, she called the child Ichabod. And Ichabod could be translated, where is the glory, or no glory, or glory gone. But what she says is that the, the, she named him Israel because the glory has departed from Israel. He's Ichabod because the glory has departed. Actually, that word, there, there's an argument that the word departed would be better translated exiled. It's the, the glory of God is now in exile from Israel. And it, it's not just the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the, the place where God showed his glory. And so she's saying, we've lost. We've lost everything. So even if I have a son, I'm not content with that because we don't have God's glory in this nation anymore. Now what am I supposed to do? So she, her heart's broken, and she just cannot deal with it. She's, she's lost all hope. And so she passes away, announcing the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to take from this, this harrowing story? Well, don't forget where we're at in 1 Samuel. We're in the time of judges. Everybody does what is right in their own eyes because there's no king in Israel. We're, we're looking forward. We know that we're missing something. The, the one judge has now died. We're anticipating a new leader, somebody to step in and to lead us and to help us do this well, because it hasn't gone well so far. So we're desiring a king. We're, we're in that gap. Um, when we get the king, it's Saul, and maybe this is good, and then it's not. And then it's David, and David does well for a while. 
It's supposed to lead us to want a king, but a better than these kings. It's supposed to lead us to want Jesus Christ to, to be our king, to lead us in true righteousness. So we have this desire that's not being met. And, and it's, we are made to desire things. So think about the, the creation story. Adam and Eve are put in the garden. They're told they can eat from any tree in the garden except for that one. They have a desire. They want to eat. They were built with a hunger so that they would eat food. So they have the desire that's built in before the fall. What happened at the fall is that desire got twisted and distorted. It got bent and broken. So God, in his, his announcement to Eve, he says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Her desire gets twisted. And then in chapter 4, when God is talking with Cain, who's angry at his brother, he says, If you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you shall master it. Sin is not some external force that floats around. Sin is a condition of the human heart. Cain's own desires, his own human heart is twisted and bent against him. Its desire is to have him. It, it will ruin him. So the problem is not that they desired to win against the Philistines. That was a good thing they wanted. Of course you want to beat the Philistines. The problem was the desire got twisted. It got turned upside down. And the same thing is true with Kaminsky and Runyon, is they, did, they didn't desire just the biggest fish. They didn't say, I want to go catch fish. That's a great thing. There's no problem with that, right? The, the disciples did it. Jesus went out fishing, told them how to catch fish. He even told them how to catch too many fish that they almost sunk the boat. So catching fish wasn't the problem. The problem was their desire became twisted. They didn't just want to catch fish. They wanted to win the tournament. They wanted the money. They wanted the glory. And so what they did is they took the weight and they put it in the wrong place. The weight should have been the fish instead of what they could stuff inside the fish to win, to cheat. The desire was right. The application was wrong. So Israel isn't wrong to want that fight, to want to win that fight. The problem was how they chose to do it. So back in chapter, or the beginning of the chapter, chapter verse 3, the elders of the Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? That is an excellent question. That is exactly the right question to ask. Why has the Lord defeated us? Not what was our, why was our strategy inefficient? And, and did we have the right weapons? And do we have enough bows and arrows or anything? It was why has God defeated us before the Philistines? Why has this happened? What would be the right way to approach that question? Would be to go to God and say, what, what's going on? What did we miss? Why are we like this? That's not what they did. Look at where they go. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh, that it may be among us and save us from the power of our enemies. We're not going to go to God and say, God, what, why are you doing this to us? What we're going to do is we're going to go get his glory, and we're going to truck it out. We're going to say, now it'll be on our side. We'll make it work for us. The desire became twisted. The desire wasn't God. It was to win, to succeed. So we're going to truck God out to be our, our token. He's going to be our power. He's going to be the secret weapon we're going to bring out. God doesn't fit into that category. He won't be your secret weapon. He won't be that thing that you bring out as a good luck charm. So the answer they, they, they sought was, how can we win? Rather than, why has God defeated us? That would have been the better way to do it. That's why when we get to this part of the story, the results are so totally tragic. Everybody's dying. It's horrible. Eli died. 
Phineas's wife is dead. The boys are dead. 30,000, 34,000 in Israel are dead. This is just super tragic. And it's because we've sought our own glory in this. So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to do this? Well, keep this in the context of seeking the king, the right king, the good king, the king who will lead us. So we're made to desire these things, but Jesus tells us there's a better way to do this. What we need is a king who is unbiased, who is loving, who cares. And so this is how Jesus explains it in Matthew 6. Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Jesus is telling us where we should look first. He says where you should first seek is the kingdom of God. We need a king. We want to be part of this kingdom. And if you seek that first, if you pursue God's kingdom and his righteousness, what Jesus promises is all those other things will be taken care of. If you're wondering, what are you going to eat? What are you going to wear? What, how am I going to get to work? How, where's where's my, um, my next paycheck coming from? Those kind of things. Jesus says, look, those things will be taken care of. Don't make those first. Don't left those up into the priority and then use me as a means to get them. Seek me and look, I will take care of you. I promise. I am the good and the right king. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. So here's what Jesus is promising us here is he's saying, he's not saying don't desire anything. He says it's right that you want to eat and you want to have clothing and where you want to have some place to live and something to drink. It's, that's right. You're built to be that way. Don't seek them first. Seek me first. Come to me and I will provide them. What he's wanting to do is reorder those desires. Put them back in the right order. Not what will I eat as in will I get the right kind of steak this time, but what will I eat? And trust that this good benevolent king will say, I will provide for you. Rather than trying to pull his glory out and set it in front of us and make it sound like it's going to take care of all our woes. So that's the picture that's going on here is the people's hearts are troubled. Now what comes next week is how God doesn't really tolerate people fooling with his glory outside the camp of Israel either. Things don't go better for the Philistines just because they got the Ark of the Covenant. It goes pretty bad for them. So, so it's not over yet. But what will happen is Samuel's going to show up. He's going to begin to judge Israel. And then the desire for a king comes up. So it's, again, those, those desires for these things. We want somebody to lead us out into battle. We want somebody to win these fights for us. And that's not a bad thing. But we have to accept it on terms that God is providing for us, what God has pre presented to us. And that's how this is pushing us, leading us towards seeing Jesus Christ as the answer to this. He is the king. He is the one who will provide. What we need is not to decide if we want him in charge or not. What we need is to say, Lord, would you align my desires with yours? Because you're not sinful, and I am. And my desires, as strong as they may be, might be out of order. They might be twisted. They might be pushing in the wrong direction. Lord, would you align my desires under yours because the kingdom is, is that good. It's, it's that desirable. We sang about heaven and, and what happens in uh, the new Jerusalem. God wipes away every tear. 
those tears sought, or poured out because of loss and because of suffering and sorrow, God comes himself and wipes away those tears. He comes and he dwells in the presence of us. He, the reason that there's no temple in this new Jerusalem is because God and the Lamb are sitting right dead center of it. There's no need for a temple. There's no separation. So what we're seeing here is, is this the desire that we should have? And how do we align our hearts under that? And that's, that's where we're supposed to be in this, this part of the book is it's about desire. It's about, man, this isn't right. Didn't you feel that when you were reading through this, this story? Man, this is not right. Um, just don't think, if I was there, because you would have probably been you in the middle of that. So that, that's the hope. Now, what comes next? Like I said, what comes next is we're not done with the ark. It hasn't just disappeared. God is not done with Israel. He's going to bring the ark back in the most spectacular way. But until then, we need to trust in God's gracious provision. Remember when we went through um, Peter? God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him and by trusting in his great and precious promises. He will reorder our desires if we pursue him and go after him. And his answers will be better than ours. So with that, let's close in prayer. Lord, I just pray that you would make me desire what is good. Lord, that you would train my heart, tune my heart through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, through seeing his grace and his glory, his power, his kindness, his love, his rebukes, but most importantly, his precious and very great promises. And Lord, that through those things, you would retune my heart. And Lord, would you do that for all of us? Would you retune all of our hearts, all of our desires, put them in order, line them up, balance them the way they should be. Lord, you know what creation is supposed to be like. You know how you made human beings to live in this universe. And so Lord, would you accomplish those things in us? And Lord, may we see your glory not as a tool to an end, but as an end in itself, as a beautiful and delightful thing. Lord, make us to seek the kingdom first. And then, Lord, may we trust that you will add all these things to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.